as we come now to the sermon exposition here, we will continue in the Gospel of John. And where we've arrived is a particular discourse of which, to the average reader, should capture their fascination. The reason why I say this is because of the idioms that has been used and stated from this particular passage. It has been heard again and again throughout your Christian walk. There's no question about it. Sometimes I actually even think there's a, there's a romanticize about that whole process. I've heard everybody go straight to the aspect of Psalm 23. And we're going to get to that towards the very end of our, my sermon. But the aspect of this process of being a shepherd, there's a sense of, uh, a sense of romanticizing the words of our Lord. Fine. No problem. Nonetheless, however, did you actually hear and understand the message that he was trying to convey? We run in a great gravity of reverence. We know the Lord is always right. He will tell the truth. He will not lie to us. But nonetheless, have you understood and applied the very words that he's spoken of in your own life? And that's what we're going to take a closer look at. Now, in arriving in chapter 10, we will look at, for today's sermon, the first 10 verses. But nonetheless, chapter 10 in the first 18 verses holds the parable of which I was conveying in my little 30-second commercial. And albeit, I think it's proper that in this sermon today, especially the way Pastor Jason conveyed it last Lord's Day, I want to show you the transition from chapter 9 coming into chapter 10. And when he returns, he would put and bookend this parable all together when he approaches verses 11 through 18. Therefore, let us now look for our sermon text today, John 10, verses 1 through 10. Truly, truly, I say to you, the one who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But the one who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him, the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep listen to his voice, and he calls on his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he pulls out his own sheep outside, he goes ahead of them and the sheep follows him because they know his voice. However, a stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus said this figure of speech, but they did not understand what things which he was saying to them that he meant. So Jesus said to them again, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All those who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out of the, go in and out and find pasture. The thief only comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I came so that they would have life and have it abundantly. Amen. Shall I now let the Lord our God in prayer? 
Father, we do thank you for this Sabbath day, Lord, that you've given us. And we're mindful of this text in which you have given to show to the people. And of which, though the audience, and the audience in the particular, was understood, nevertheless, we can see and have this applied in our lives. So being as good sheep, intending to the voice of our shepherd, we hear your voice when it is spoken of. We obey to that point so that we understand and know and see as the shepherd that you are, you still care for our souls. It's in Christ's most holy and precious name we pray. Amen. So, as we take to chapter 10, the parable of the good shepherd is the only parable of which you may see in the gospel of John. As compared to all the historical contexts you will notice with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And please, there are two particular parables in Luke and in Matthew of which the lost sheep was explained, the 99 plus 1. But nonetheless, let's not try to relate them in this particular fashion. So as this parable is being given, let's consider the audience. From chapter 9 coming to chapter 10, the Lord is still in his continual discourse with the Sahedrin officers, in particular, the Pharisees. And in which his discourse comes after the Pharisees are speaking with the man who recently had his sight given by the Lord, the man was excommunicated. And it's interesting. For during their little discourse with the man, <laughs> the Pharisees state by verse 29 in chapter 9, we know God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, which they're speaking of Christ, we do not know where he is from. So therefore, to continue pitting Moses against the master, they would continue in their abusive practices. If you recall in chapter 9, they brought up false accusations. Chapter 9, verse 16. They manufactured fear. Chapter 9, 22 to 23. And they displayed even false facades. The facades of praise to God. Chapter 9, verse 24. To which they were able to show to the people and come and convince their own feeble minds, we are the disciples of Moses. So then our master, oh, our master in his wise and holy counsel, decides to make a very acute statement that for some odd reason, the Pharisees are given some sort of trepidation. They actually fear. And our master states in this, For judgment I come into this world so that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. To which the trepidation that I can state the Pharisees state, they ask them then this question, Are we not blind too? Are we? <laughs> so they understood what he was trying to convey here. And you know what's interesting? 
They abuse their privileges and honors and ranks to do the false accusations, to put on the false facades, to create deception, just to appeal as the disciples of Moses, just to hold it a face to the people now. But then if you were the disciples of Moses, as you claim to be, why did you ask him the question, we are not blind too, are we? For you may assume or think they're all of a sudden trying to find sudden and common ground with him. Uh, no. They were prepared for what was going to be provoked. What was going to bring their attentions ablaze and what were they going to be, in our layman terms, called out on. Now, this is nothing new. Our master called their bluff. First, let me recall, John 5, 45 to 47. Note here, do not think I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accused you is Moses. <laughs> In whom you have put your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would have believed me. He wrote about me. But if you don't believe his writings, how can you say, or how can you believe my words? That was the first instance. Let's go down the rabbit hole and go even further. The following year, John 7, 19 through 24. In particular, John 19 here. John 7, 19. Did Moses not give you the law and yet none of you carry the law? In fact, by verse 22, for this reason, Moses has given you circumcision. That it is not from Moses, but from the fathers. And even on the Sabbath, you would uphold it by circumcising a man. So then by verse 23, if a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you not angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? Hmm. You see, their provocation here is anticipated because they just went through this whole discourse and spiel with the man to show we know the words of Moses. So it's like Jason had put it last week. They're pitting Moses against the Messiah. But the Messiah says, oh, that is on the contrary. For as far as he went to verse 5, he even told them, I'm not going to be the one who judges you. Moses is. Why can't he say that? He gave Moses the law. And he even calls him out in chapter 7 says, you claim to be opposers of the law. And he calls him out at verse 19 in chapter 7, yet you none of you carry it out. The hypocrisy, huh? So, now our Lord's going to take to this provocation and it's like, well, look what you've done. You've excommunicated an innocent man. On what bounds? Because you claim to see. Oh, is that right? <laughs> if that is the case, let's test your pride. Nope. John 10, 6 states, Jesus told them the figure of speech, but they did not understand what the things which he was saying to them were to mean. You claim to see. 
Well, then tell me what this means. Now, before we continue, if you're going to note here, and what's interesting, because for those who's reading into it, to the humanists and to the antinomians who claim Christianity, they would again come to a schism. They would just say, why could not the Messiah just plainly tell them? Just plainly tell them I'm the Messiah. Why couldn't he just done that? Why couldn't Jesus just said that? Well, verse 19 is actually going to address that. So we'll get to that point down the lane here. But we're going to use this opportunity to show that our Lord had his use for parables. You see, again, even when I brought to you by that little short little snippet on the catechism lesson here today about the law of God and how it has a work in sanctifying our souls, the parables had a meaning in the way the Messiah used them. How so? Well, many writers have different purposes to what the parables were meant. But for the sake of the argument here, I can tell you there's two particular things that are consistent. Is that it is to hide from those who claim to understand when they really don't. So it's like calling your bluff. Huh? But then also, scripture is to be fulfilled. He was meant to speak in parables. Where did this adage come from? Well, let's go down here. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew 13, 10 through 16, in which I will read in its states. And the disciples came up and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? Oh, so look, the question is a natural question in which they would ask. And Jesus answered it in. Now note here, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. He goes so far as to say by verse 12, for whoever has to him more shall be given and he will have an abundance, but whoever does not have even what he has have shall be taken away from him. I therefore speak to them in parables because while seeing, they do not see. While hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. In the case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled. If you want to know where this axiom in Isaiah is stated, it is stated in Isaiah 44. In particular, verse 18. But note how the New Testament shows this understanding and transition. Isaiah states, or in this indication, Matthew. You shall keep on listening, but you shall not understand. And you shall keep on looking, but you shall not perceive. By verse 15. For the heart of these people have become dull. With their ears, they scarcely hear. They have their eyes closed. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes otherwise they might hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and i will heal them oh blessed are your eyes because they see in your hear ears because they hear when we come into the christian faith in particular as we see I'm not going to go through so much the Ordes Lutus, but as we see the change from a practical standpoint of that your mindset, your understanding, it has a different why. 
No longer, again, as I showed you in Ephesians, do you want to walk like the Gentiles, but now want to rock after hearing the truth in Christ. The blessedness that comes with the understanding here is the fact that when you hear his voice, you listen. So, what appropriate time that our Lord looks, especially here in chapter number 10, that I like to healing the lame man in chapter 5, by verses 1 through 18, he uses that physical work that he did to explain the doctrine of the resurrection. John 5, 19 through 32. So look as he's doing it here in chapter 9, in which he heals and gives sight to the blind man. How he's going to show an important doctrine in chapter 10. The gospel itself. By verses 1 through 5, as we come to chapter 10 now, he uses a comparison. In verse 1, he denotes the individual actions to the following character and judgment of which one can see. He states, the one who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up. Some other way, he is a thief and a robber. Now, given his use of the analogy of a door, let's note this by logic. A door separates or provides a line of demarcation. So it's kept to keep something separate. In fact, it is also a binary system. It can either be open or closed. No other way. So, Behind a door must have been something that was being separated or kept from another area. And what would this be? In this case, something must be of value. Why? Because to denote thief and robber, their vocation is to pillage, to plunder. And what are they looking to plunder from? The fold of the sheep. So in this clause then, by which... Our master denotes how the individuals were to enter into the fold of the sheep. They entered in by outside means. And because he is the intention that they were thieves and robbers, well then, the individual's attention was not to partake in the harmony that came with being within the fold. But they rather found something to take. What would they want to take? What did the sheep have that was so valuable? They wanted to take them. They wanted to do it. And if it's so interesting, I harpen it back to the Pharisees. They wanted to take them by false accusations, by manufacturing fear, and above all else, through deception. In fact, if we look at our churches today, we see that many churches across denominations have even decided to make him to be a liar. Oh, yeah. They make our own master to be a liar. And what does this mean? Well, officers of their particular sessions and laymen of the church do not trust, let alone believe the scripture to the very words of our Lord when it comes to what pertains of the church. So they do the same practices as the Pharisees. 
false accusations, manufacturing fear and deception, and above all else, denote false or, or uh, under the gaze of facades, false worship. It's amazing that the examples in which the scriptures denote even so much the punishment as to which God has holds his church in such gravity is very apparent. For you see, let's take you down memory lane here. Let's consider the qualifications of all the officers. How about in the Old Testament with the Levitical priesthood? Something simple. Levitical. Uh, um, Leviticus 21. Even in fact, he gave Israel rules on how to discern false and true prophets. Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 22. And this did not just stop in the Old Testament, for the discernment of which the officers were to take continue on to the new as the administration was coming into the fold for the covenant. We see this with bishops and deacons. 1 Timothy 3, 2 through 12. So it's clear we can denote what these roles should intake. But again, like I said, in today's churches, people do not consider the door or how they came into the fold of the sheep. And that's what the Messiah is making a point of. You might be gathered amongst the church visible, but how did you come in? Many individuals who take to the office and staying with this particular idea did not come to the door of which our Lord is stating here. In fact, they follow the guidelines that is a light to the robbers and the thieves because they climb some other way. From the Old Testament, <laughs> I bring to you King Saul, who robbed God of his glory. Yes, he robbed God of his glory by offering a sacrifice that he was not meant to do. 1 Samuel 13, in particular by verse 11. Note what he states when he sees Samuel arrive. When I saw that the people were scattered from me, so now all of a sudden, I'm taking empirical evidence here and that you did not come in the days appointed. So you were supposed to be here in seven days. I got worried and thought you got lost. So I felt compelled. I felt compelled because of what I felt. I offered the birth sacrifice. So now what did Saul's feelings get him what did he feel in his cup and his in his compassion or weird drama set of feeling compelled what did it get him he lost his kingdom by verse number 14 and now did it mean that Saul's physical reign were to stop because believe it or not the story states it was in year two that this transpired he reigned 40 years 40 years. In fact, I could even state there was a reason why Saul was the individual set up to do what he did. 
but that's a different sermon for a different day. How about to the new? How about to the new? Because now, granted, it seems pretty simplistic, especially with all the different versions of denominations and various rules that they like to come up with. We'd like to see some of this adage seen in scripture in regards to not coming through the door and coming through some other way just to take the sheep. Rather, steal God's glory. I bring to you Acts 19. To the Jewish exorcist who attempted to name over those who had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus. But they found out on their account that from them and what transpired to them, fear fell on all those Jews and Greeks who witnessed that the evil spirit did not even claim those men to be Christians. And what did evil spirits do? They leaped on them and subdued them. So you see, the trepidation found on the Pharisees' faces, and it will be seen in due time from the individuals. It's also a thing that can transpire here in our own day. Because, you see, the saddest part is that I just have to put on a facade. I have to say enough words. I have to have a band. I have to have dance artists. I have to have streamers. I have to have lights. Just to pull in the crowd because, and I, it's very interesting how he's using it in chapter 19. I want to do this in the name of the Lord Jesus. But our parable here shows that if you decided not to come to the door, but climb some other way, You partake because you want to steal my glory. You want to you you are in your own selfishness to steal my glory rather than take to harmony what I have set forward. Rules are in play for Saul. All he had to do was obey. He did it. The Jews understood as they were trying to perform their hocus pocus. That the marks of a true apostle was seen. So all they had to do was obey. But because they were so, and one, compelled, the other wanted to receive glory, they both failed. And worse, rejected. You know, I'm using officers in this particular portion because it seems very easy to attack them. But we as individuals can also find ourselves in this situation when we're trying to be amongst the sheep and yet we've proven we are not. And again, I'll use same old adage from the old. Do you remember Kara's family and household who being disobedient, Moses had them outside the tent and the ground swallowed them up. Numbers 16, 25 to 34. But how about the new? Ananias and his wife looking to steal. Peter catches them in the way that he did. Acts 5, 1 through 11. You can't fake being a Christian. 
It's just as simple as that. You can't fake it. Either you are or you aren't. And it's interesting that Jason <clears throat> brought up that third adage, but it really wasn't a third adage because you created some sort of logic in your mind. Well, I'm doing this. I'm partaking in this. I'm partaking in that. Surely I must be one. Does now make does it make a little bit more sense why we read the law of God? And again, like I said, it's an encouragement when he sanctifies us in his word. He's looking to sanctify us because he has, from the beginning of time, understood who was going to be his own. So the plan that he transpired, he has, if he created, he has to be the one that brings it forward. In fact, sometimes when we're seeing individuals and we kind of get intimidated because we're like, Lord, how is it that these individuals who we know they're not telling the truth, who we know that, yes, on the stage or in this life, they show one sense of a side, but then in the backlash, they're a different person. And everybody still thinks that they're doing fine. No, they're not doing fine. We can pray that they come to repentance, but if they choose not to. They choose not to, to prove that they weren't really his. Jonathan Edwards said it best. Their foot will slip in due time. By verse number five, the Lord even shows that these individuals, though they may claim that they've made some inroads, they did not. For they come out empty handed. A stranger, the sheep will not follow, but they will flee from him because my sheep do not know the voice of strangers. And it's amazing here that in which our Lord and Savior shows with the understanding of how the thieves and robbers come empty handed. Note here by verses two through four, the contra to the argument. He states, but the one who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. And to him, the doorkeeper opens and the sheep listens to his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and they lead him out. By verse 4, when he puts out his own sheep outside, he goes ahead of them and the sheep follows because they know his voice. Here are those individuals who entered by the door do not despise their Messiah. They do not despise Christ. They do not disobey their master. For they know there is no other way into the fold lest the door open. For interest into the church is shown by Christ himself. And to the men who's been called to lead men and women and children straight to Christ, not just by leading, but they also partake. Pastor Jason, Pastor JP, and, Pat, uh, and myself do not find ourselves different from all of you. We do not. We have to hold to the same rules and regulations that you do. The only difference, we're up here on stage and our life is like a fishbowl. You see everything. There is no question in my mind when you consider the individuals who has to Take this vocation. You've judged. 
a thought could come into your mind. Is this guy really who we think I think he is? Is he as wise as he proclaims out to be? How's his family life? How's he doing here, this and that and a third? Did not the qualifications in 1 Timothy explain and show how a man is supposed to take to this particular office is to behave? So we understand what the job title entails. We understand the gravity to which we stand on this pulpit. So then you must be wondering, why should you have confidence in us? We don't want you to have confidence on us. We want you to understand we tremble when we preach the word because we don't want to be wrong. The key truth of the matter is, believe it or not, we fear God for being wrong, to be lazy in doing our work. You have it easy. There's double the condemnation when it comes to our job. This is where he was trying to get the Pharisees to understand in regards to their lack of seeing. When we speak, we don't want to manufacture fear. The fear should be because you came to us and said, I want to do what God says, but I'm not sure if I'm doing it. We're here to help and see if you are. If you have children, you have family matters, we should be able to assist in counsel. We're not going to tell you what to do. We'll tell you what God says to do. But this is what the Pharisees lack to see. <laughs> it's amazing because unlike the robbers and thieves, the sheep, our Lord says, listen to these men. They listen to these men who are called to shepherd. For when they speak, as again, they don't speak on their own accord. They speak because the spirit has spiritually worked in their hearts. And when they speak, if the spirit is speaking within you, you're able to spiritually discern if they're telling the truth or if they're lying. Simply, the rightful individuals have come properly to claim to him what he's been entrusted. In this case, the shepherd, but even to the sheep, even to the sheep, what are you going to claim? The fact that if the door is opened and the Lord has opened your eyes to repentance, you're adopted. You're no longer outside. You're inside the room. You're amongst the fold of the sheep. And you get to partake in what transpires with being with the sheep, the privileges and the honor. Amazingly, in which when the shepherd speaks and they recognize his voice, 
Again, they don't recognize his voice, but they spiritually discern their Lord and Master's every word. By verses 7 through 10 then, because by verses 1 through 6, our Lord is showing here the aspect of the parable. But no, by verses 7 through 10, he's now actually trying to clarify it. And what's interesting, he speaks in the declarative now. I am the door of the sheep. So by verses 79, we see this adage used. But then note here in particular, in particular, verses 8 and 10 in part. All those who came before me, though, are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them because this thief only comes to steal, kill, and destroy as compared to the latter portions of verses 9 and now in verse particularly number 10 here. If anyone enters through me, however, he will be saved. He will go in and out and find pasture. I came, key word here, I came so that they would have life and have it abundantly. Now something should be pretty apparent and should have jumped at you pretty much particularly immediately when you heard, I am the door of the sheep. Why doesn't he denote that he is the shepherd to which he gained access to the sheep. Again, you got to catch your antinomians and your humanists at every turn. Because you want to make sure they understand there is no schisms and there is no contradiction. As which, with which our Lord uses the analogy to denote that he is the door to the sheep. He's just simply saying, I am the gateway to the fold. You must come through me to get to the church. Isn't it frustrating when you hear individuals say, you can believe this and still be saved. You can believe this and still be saved. And I'm not going to name any names, but I've heard even some prominent and popular ministers indicate that message. All of a sudden now they've made the Messiah to be a liar. So who's telling the truth? And these are prominent men who's indicated that you can believe something else aside from Christ and still be saved. See, that's the danger. This is where I said they've made him to be a liar. You can't get away with that. You can't. You just can't. In fact, what's interesting is that our Lord denotes that as he is the door to the sheep, and then those who's been called, the door has been opened. They've been given access to the church, visible and invisible, but in particular, universal. They will find salvation, Acts 4.12, and they will be spiritually fed and quenched, John 4.10, also John 4.13, and John 6.35. But oh ho ho, to those, as he stated in verse 8, who came before me to wish they are thieves and robbers. These individuals who decided to come another way into the flock not only did not listen to the voice of the shepherds who were meant to be not only properly called, but meant to be over them. They went even as forward as entering in through a disguise. Now you gotta, you gotta think. 
How did these people get in here and all of a sudden we begin to listen to them? Well, we've always heard the adage or the idiom, wolves in sheep's clothing. But nonetheless, is it just so much that they decided to take the pelt of the sheep and put it on? No. It's as simple as opening their mouth. Like the Jewish exorcist, I'm doing this in the name of Jesus. How about the gentleman who decided that when he wanted to take to sorcery, but then saw the works of the apostles, and I'm sorry, the name is escaping me now right now, but he told Peter because Peter called him on his bluff. He says, well, then you pray for me. Oh, it's nothing new. Everybody thinks they're doing this in the name of Jesus. He's not too concerned about that. He wants to know if you're going to obey and listen. That's what he's saying here. He said it again and again and again and again. I mean, it's kind of crazy how blunt this actually is. It's amazing too if, it, if I was there to realize how blunt he would have spoken. But nonetheless... These individuals in disguise as wolves in sheep's clothing, all they do is speak. For what do they tend to do? They tend to pillage. They tend to plunder by propagating false doctrines to undo what the Christ was meant to do, which was to give life and give it abundantly. <laughs> Our Messiah speaks here. Matthew 7, 15. He even states, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And oh, <laughs> this is interesting too, because as you note here, as he continues in this particular position, he even states, I'll go by verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my father will enter. He even continues. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons? <laughs> and perform miracles all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, I never knew you. Depart from me, you practice lawlessness. You're the thief. You're the robber. You came in the other way. You didn't come in through the door. Hence why he used the analogy. I'm the door to the church. If you do not come through me, you don't have access to anything that the flock, the flock partakes in. You can come and talk like us. You might even think, I need to dress modestly so I can look like him. That doesn't matter. The sheep hears the voice of their shepherd and they listen. And the timetable for which the Lord is even showing before me even shows here now that the master has arrived to convey that truth you must come through me i am here you must believe me in order to access for before and in his truth we understand how he had his ministers set up to which we had the sanhedrin from all those who took to speak behind the gravity that is 
I speak on behalf of the Lord. But because Jason is going to get to that in particular with the Good Shepherd, I'm giving you a little tidbit. But nonetheless, if we're going to make this transition in understanding in particular which we can now see the analogy compared between the door and the Good Shepherd, we must understand and see what the message our Lord is trying to convey. And if there's anything you don't get, especially then, here's what it is. By showing that he's the door, he is showing you must come through him to be saved. You must come through him to be even be a Christian. There's no if, ands, or buts about it. He has rendered individuals of which he called who were properly allowed access into the church to take care of his people. When they speak, they speak on his behalf, not their own. So when the sheep listens, if you want to be a good sheep, you know when you hear the voice of God because you can spiritually discern and the spirit is working in your heart. But if you find that is antithetical to be in church on Sunday, if you find that the ministers do not know what they're doing, if you find that the sacraments have no benefit for you, you are nothing more than wolves in sheep's clothing. If you find that you're on this pulpit across America or wherever you are, and you were to think that in entering to the church is somewhere outside of Christ, you are a wolf in sheep's clothing. And I guarantee you, according to what the Messiah says, the sheep will not listen to you. You may think you got 4,000, 5,000, you could pack a stadium. It doesn't mean a thing because the sheep know their master's voice. So as promised, I bring you down to Psalms 23 because it speaks as we head into the aspect of our Lord being the good shepherd it is an understanding that a shepherd leads his sheep. And to begin, in which the psalmist state as David is moved by the Spirit, that as the Lord is his shepherd, I shall not want. To convey that upon which his master has arrived to lead him. As we saw in the first portion, you will come and go in the pasture and you will find. In fact, I like I stated, like I stated, he even stated, you will never be hungry and you'll always be fed. For spiritually, by his word, we actually live. It continues as he makes me down lean, uh, and makes me lie down in green pastures and he leaves me besides quiet waters. We not only have sustenance, we are not only filled spiritually, but we find peace. He restores my soul as he guides me in the path of righteousness. How it be that in this particular way, he speaks and sanctifies you through his word. For though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for you are with me. So think of it. The shepherd walks with his sheep. Any portion at which Wolves will come. He smacks them with the rod. And the sheep continues to move with his master. Your rod and staff, 
they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. The honor and privilege of being a Christian. When people see how much your life has moved. It's not to say you've had millions of dollars and been giving much. It's more to say that you have peace in your life. Tell me more about this. And if you can attribute it to the fact that the Messiah has done a work in your heart and that you find peace in this life, how much more than others will see that when they see you walk, when they see you talk, when you see you converse with them. Now, money is great because resources and being able to do things is fantastic. And if they were in need and you're able to lend a hand, that's also a show. But nonetheless, we as Christians are given a privilege and an honor, and for some, those who are in the office, a rank, to which our Lord wants us to see and take enjoyment and encouragement in. But you know what's cool? You know what's beautiful? We, as Christians and the sheep, we can see this, according to Matthew 13. But sadly, the humanist cannot. And that is their envy. That they can't see. Though they claim to have said they can, they can't see. Take hope, take privilege in understanding what it means as Psalm 23 concludes. Surely goodness and loveness and kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Take kindness and, and loveness, because to be the one where the Messiah has the door open and you enter in, man, it feels good to be a Christian. Shall we now let the Lord our God in prayer?